Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy Show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I want to start out today with a Bulls and Bears market report to let you know how the stock market closed on Friday, March 2nd, 2018. For the week, The Dow closed at 24,500, down right at 3%. The NASDAQ is at 7,258. It closed down 1.08%. The S&P 500 was at 2,691. It closed down a little over 2%. Gold is at 1,324. And surprisingly, it's also down half a percent. And oil closed at 61.45, and it went up three-quarters of a percent. So what happened last week that made the markets go down? Most of the market action towards the end of the week is a function of President Trump's announcing that he wants to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum. The steel tariff is going to be 25 percent, and the aluminum tariff is going to be 10 percent. So a tariff means that we tax the products of a foreign country as they come into the United States at a certain rate. It's an economic protectionism designed to give domestic producers a little bit of an edge. So this means that we would be taxing imported steel at 25% and aluminum at 10%. The problem with this is tariffs are rarely enacted unilaterally. Some of the arguments over the weekend have been that, well, a 10% impact to aluminum is not going to impact the consumer because there's not much aluminum in beer cans. That was the example I heard several times this weekend. And so it's such a small amount of a tariff that it won't raise the cost of beer. And that might be true. The problem is you don't get to set a tariff and expect your neighbors that you've put the tariff against not to react in kind. And there has been a global uproar over the fact that we're going to have a tariff against steel and aluminum. In fact, it looks like if this moves forward, we may be about to enter a global trade war. And in a trade war, other countries impose tariffs on what we want to export. For example, over the weekend, they announced that they're going to put tariffs on oranges exported from the United States, Harley-Davidson motorcycles, blue jeans, and Kentucky bourbon. Now, the Harley-Davidson and the bourbon are really interesting. Harley-Davidson's home plant is in Paul Ryan State. This was not by accident. And Kentucky Bourbon, of course, is Mitch McConnell. So this is a very strong, incredibly direct message to those leaders that the world is not happy. In fact, Canada, one of our closest allies and neighbors, is really upset about these tariffs, and they have announced that if we start the tariffs against them, then they are going to put a tariff against California wine, because Canada imports a lot of California wine, and so this will now begin to hurt the grape producers and the winemakers in California. So when you're looking at a tariff, you've got to look at it from multiple perspectives. 
First, yes, this might help the steel industry a little bit in the States. It might help the aluminum industry a little bit in the States. But there will be more jobs lost and more problems to the overall economy if we have foreign countries that then retaliate against us. The market is generally a good indicator of how things look. And the market was really unhappy after these tariffs were announced. By the way, sort of unilaterally by the president, there was talk of some meetings, but nothing was ready to be rolled out. It isn't how you do it. You don't just randomly announce one day you're going to have a tariff. The market closed down 420 points that day. It closed down again Friday morning, although it rallied in the afternoon. So it went down till about noon, came back up. Only the Dow actually closed down on Friday. I think there was talk that perhaps the tariffs wouldn't really happen, that this was an idea that wasn't really going to be manifest. And it will be interesting to see what happens this week. If these tariffs are imposed the way that they're currently being described, market reaction might be very negative. Global market reaction might be very negative. Now, you know, it's always possible the market doesn't go in the direction I'm expecting, but it's going to be important this week to watch the news and watch the markets to try to get a sense of where we think things are going to go next. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. In this week's legislative update, I want to start out by talking about the Equifax data breach again. I know we've talked about it several times, and I'm not really sure it's a legislative update, but I think it's important for you to know what's going on and see the news as it's unfolding to make sure that you can be as protected as possible. So last week, Equifax announced that there were even more people whose data was compromised than what they had originally reported. They found an additional 2.4 million people whose identities could have been stolen. Honestly, I don't know how they keep finding these. I would have thought that the data set would have been fairly static towards the beginning. Nevertheless, they found 2.4 more people who could be at risk. So if you're trying to monitor this, you might want to look again to see if your name's been added to the list. Additionally, Equifax announced that they now have a cost of $439 million associated with this data breach. This makes it the most expensive data breach that we've ever seen, and unfortunately, Equifax only has $125 million of insurance to help them cover it, so the rest of that money is going to have to come from corporate profits and other sources by the time they get everyone paid back and they cover all of the expenses, they're afraid that the final bill may be over $600 million, and that would include the cost of some lawsuits and things that they're anticipating coming down the road, but that hasn't happened yet. I think that what you need to take away out of this is to continue to monitor the Equifax data to see if you're at risk, then do what you can to keep your information safer. 
if you're not choosing to do that, then it's very important to take advantage of your ability to look at your credit history each year for free. You can do that without damaging your credit score from all of the major credit agencies. And just try to be sure that nothing has gone wrong. You haven't opened a card that you don't remember opening, that there aren't transactions on there that you didn't make. Hopefully this gets better at some point. Unfortunately, right now, the news just seems to be getting worse. The second thing I want to talk to you about today is a new, um, a new situation within the fiduciary rules, which is Massachusetts versus Scottrade. And this is going to be important for a lot of reasons that we're going to come to in just a minute. Basically, what happened was Scott Trade was going to be acquired by TD Ameritrade, and in the run-up to that acquisition, the Scott Trade advisors were focusing on gathering additional assets. They had several contests of how many new clients can you get, how many new clients can you retain. The first contest that they got record of was the Q3 win and retain sales contest in June of 2017. There was another contest between August to September of 2017. And what Massachusetts is saying is that Scott Trade was focusing more on getting new clients than they were on taking care of the clients that they already had. Now, remember, a lot of the Department of Labor fiduciary rule has been put on ice. Some of it looks like it may never see the light of day. However, the beginning part of the implementation did occur last June. And one of the things that the Department of Labor said is that advisors have to act in their client's best interest. Now, I realize that sounds like it's the whole thing. It's actually pretty complicated. And for the sake of what I want to talk about today, I don't want to get very far into the weeds. Massachusetts is contending that Scott Trade did not do that, that instead they let their traditional retirement clients just kind of float along as they were focusing on acquiring all this new business prior to being acquired by TD Ameritrade, which I'm guessing would cause the sale price to go up because typically financial firms are purchased as a function of how many assets under management they have. So Scott Trade would have gotten more money for the deal if they had more assets than necessarily if they were just providing great customer service to the clients that they already had. Why is this important? Well, this is really interesting because the question has been, where would the lawsuits come from under the Department of Labor fiduciary rule? And a lot of people were concerned that there would be class action lawsuits by consumers because DOL allowed that. They were concerned that advisors would break a part of the rule that hasn't actually yet been implemented. That's part that's been delayed Instead, what's happening is state regulators are going after firms, and they could just as easily go after advisors, on the whole primary premise of this, which is you were putting your compensation ahead of your clients. So 
for all of the concern and all of the stretch about all of the risk the advisors might be under under this DOL rule, it really just comes back to the lawsuits are happening from the central core tenant, which is when you're working with someone's retirement money, you have to act in their best interest and your focus can't be on finance. It will be interesting to see how this lawsuit turns out because Massachusetts just created the case. So we don't know yet how it's going to go through the courts. We don't know what's going to happen. But as the case progresses, I will keep you in the loop. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back. In this week's Plan Your Prosperity section, I want to talk about something serious, something that if you get it wrong, you could really make your family's life difficult. Well, the joke is there's nothing that's certain except death and taxes. We know we're going to die, but we really don't like to think about it. So we don't, and we don't talk about it, and sometimes our children or our spouse don't want to hear it. So the entire thing goes unsaid, and maybe you've done a good job. Maybe you've got your will in place, or maybe the trust was appropriate and you have a trust. You've got your powers of attorney. You've got your living wills. Everything is good. There's still one more piece that I want you to think about putting together to make it easier at the time something happens to you, and that is a master list of everything that you've got. I've had clients come in to my office and say, you know, I don't want to talk to my kids about money. And so they don't. And they don't talk about where any of their assets are. And they don't talk about how anything is organized. So if those children don't know to contact me, there could be investment accounts that it could be very difficult for me to deal with and handle because I'm not allowed to violate um, privacy acts. So it's important to bring children into meetings with financial advisors to make sure that they know where the accounts are. It's also important that you organize your insurance policies. Sometimes you'll have an old policy and even you don't hardly remember where it is, but you know it's there somewhere. You need to make a list of all of the policies, who the contact people are, what the face value is of the policy, just so that um, the people who are looking for this information basically know what they're looking for. In addition to that, you need to let people know where the deeds are, because some things still have paper deeds. If you don't know what you're looking for, it's very hard to go find court records without something to base it on. You need to know where the... Um, the boxes in the banks are. So if you've got a safety deposit box, someone needs to know what bank it's in and someone needs to know where the key is. Now, if you know that there's a safety deposit box in a bank, you can go through probate, you can get court orders, you can get into that box eventually. But it's possible that your kids don't know where all your banks are. And some people have safety deposit boxes in banks where that's pretty much all they have there. They might have a small account just to let them do it because they don't want everyone looking at their information all the time. And all of this is good, and privacy makes sense, but if something happens to you, 
someone needs a master list. Now, if your relationship with your children is good, your relationship with your spouse is good, obviously these are the first people you should be looking to give the list to. If you want to just point them in directions without being specific, maybe there's something about it you really don't want to go into a lot of detail about, at least give them the insurance company name, the policy number, and some contact information. Give them where the brokerage accounts are held. Let them know where you have a pension, because sometimes pensions have spousal benefits attached or an alternative beneficiary attached. If there's a lump sum coming back or a continuation of an annuity, people just need to know where it is. This is such an easy thing to do. It doesn't cost anything at all. It's just literally a piece of paper that you can put into your filing cabinet. But if you do that, you need to tell people this is where it is. You can, if the family dynamics are a little off, you could give that list to a friend who you know would step in if something happened to you. You could give it to a financial professional, like a certified financial planner practitioner or a CPA or your attorney. So if you're trying to put more distance, there's other ways that you can do it. But it is very, very important that you create the list of where everything is, put it somewhere where your family can find it, because otherwise life insurance policies can just disappear. And if the insurance company doesn't know you've died, they don't know who to reach out to. Old pensions from old jobs may have even lost your contact information. So it's up to you to get it organized, put it together, put it in a format that's easy to understand, and then put it someplace safe where people know where it is. I promise that there's going to be the day that your family is going to be very grateful that you took the time to take care of all of this now. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. So it's time for the Ask Peggy segment of the show. Remember, if you have a question, you can go to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and type that question on the page, and then I'll answer it during the show. So remember, that's the Ask Peggy Facebook page if you'd like to participate in this part of what we're doing. So one of the questions that I got this week said, Peggy, how can I learn about my financial advisor? How can I find out if there's anything about him or her that I need to know? And that's a great question, because one of the good things about financial services is it is a regulated industry. So a great place to start looking for information about your financial advisor, and this works whether they're a broker or an investment advisor, is on the FINRA website. That's F-I-N-R-A dot org. You type that in, and on the home screen, you will see a link to something called Broker Check. Now, don't let that trick you because investment advisors are on there as well as brokers. 
Then it brings up a search screen, and the easiest way to find someone is to type in their name. If it's a common name, you might also want to type in the state or the city where they're located. But generally, the information that you need to know about this person is information that you already know, and so it's easy to organize. It's easy to type it in, and then it will bring that person up with a hyperlink. And when you click on that link, it will let you know if they've ever had any regulatory issues. Have they ever had something that they needed to disclose? Has anything ever gone wrong? Now, the flip side of that is, if there isn't anything there, then you know that the person is all right because their name will be there, but it will just simply show that there is nothing to disclose. It'll be some basic information about them, and it's a very good first line of trying to find information out. Has something happened at the level that it needed to be reported, and now it's out there in the public domain? Now, on that same FINRA page, they've added some additional resources for other financial professionals as well that might be useful to you. They have a commodities and futures brokers check, and commodities and futures brokers are very different than just plain old stock brokers or investment advisors. It's a different license. It's very specific, and so this is a site specifically designed for them. Additionally, they have a search for insurance agents, where you can find out information about the insurance agent, probably related only to investments because insurance is state regulated, and Finra is a federal site. But still, if you're wanting to look for an insurance agent and you've got the name, you could type it in, just see what comes up, and then finally, there's a CPA license verification. Where you can see whether or not a person claiming to be a CPA really is one. Now, the CPA Society has its own regulatory、um, body. They have information that you can look up information about CPAs specifically there. The problem is when things start to go really bad, people will claim to have designations that they don't hold at all. They might claim to be a broker or an investment advisor. And they're really not registered. In fact, if you find someone and they're not listed, now maybe something's gone wrong. Maybe you've spelled the name wrong. Maybe the person goes by a nickname and you've typed it in wrong. But if you're ever looking for a financial professional on BrokerCheck and you can't find them, you need to keep doing research until you figure out why that is, because an unregistered person won't be listed there. So keep looking, just like with CPAs. If they're not actually CPAs, they won't be on that、um, license verification. So this is a great place to start. Additionally, you can go to your state regulators page. The state regulators will have information on brokers and advisors. That they do audits on that are registered in the state, and you can get more information sometimes from those state sites than what you might actually find on BrokerCheck. There's reciprocity to a certain extent, but it's always good to go ahead and use the search function in your state securities regulator's office to see what's going on. Additionally, if someone is an investment advisor. 
they will have a form ADV that they have submitted to the SEC or their state securities office, depending upon how much money they manage. This form ADV has two parts. The first part is general information, but the second part is a plain English description of how they say they do business. Now, I understand that if someone is really misleading you, the form ADV might also be misleading, but it's a very good way to look at what the advisor says that he or she is doing and then see whether or not it matches up to what's actually happening. The last place to look for information is the internet because many things make the news and advisors will have stories printed. Now you have to be careful because it can't just be an opinion piece. But if there's something really shady and weird going on, the internet will probably have a news story about it somewhere, and it's a good place to be sure that the person that you're working with is the person you really want handling your money. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. The second question for this week is a really common question that I get from a lot of people, which is, Peggy, when should I take Social Security? There's a lot of factors that go into when your Social Security benefit makes the most sense to take, but there's a couple of things that really are important for you to understand that I want you to think about. And the first question I would ask you is, are you still working? Because if you're under full retirement age, which for most people is 66 to 67 years old, and you want to take your Social Security benefit, you have an income limit or you lose $1 out of every two in your Social Security benefit. So in 2018, that income limit is $17,040. So if you're working and you're making more than $17,040, you probably do not want to take your Social Security benefit early because you'll have that 50% reduction in benefits. Now, there's a more complicated rule if you start taking benefits in the year that you are full retirement age, then it's a deduction of one out of every $3, and the income limit there is $40. Five thousand three hundred and sixty dollars. So, the last year you have more flexibility, but ahead of that, you probably don't want to take your benefit if you don't have to. Now, additionally, remember that your Social Security benefit grows by about eight percent each year. So that if you retire and you take your Social Security benefit at sixty-two you're going to get about 25% less than if you took it at your full retirement age at 66. If you waited until you were 70, then your check is going to be about 32% more than it would have been at full retirement age. By the time you're 70, you have to take the benefit. They don't let you postpone it any longer than that. So, From 70, you've maxed your benefit, you start taking it, it's the best you can do. 
I know some people say that the eight percent growth might not be worth either the risk that inflation is bad or the possibility that they change the Social Security terms. That's a decision that you really have to make. Remember that the eight percent is roughly a guarantee rate. Now it will be impacted by inflation, but so would anything else. So if you average the three percent inflation, then it's a real rate of return of five percent that you don't really have to worry about, assuming Social Security stays viable. Although it's possible that Social Security could lose its viability, I really don't think it's likely because I can't imagine Washington D.C. ever wanting to say to seniors, "I'm sorry, this benefit doesn't exist anymore," because they want to get reelected, and the easiest way in the world to replace Congress is to eliminate Social Security. So I think there will be a fix. The fix is likely eliminating the cap. So that all of the income is subject to Social Security tax, there's lots of solutions. We just have to let them find them. Well, I can't believe how fast the time has gone. Thank you so much for listening, and tune in next week. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma KVOY 104.5 FM for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.